0: Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with g got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. Dark allows space for evil to breed, to grow, to devour. In the 18th and 19th centuries, London was experiencing an influx of immigrants in search of work and a better life for their families. Many men arrived in London with very little money in hopes of finding work and sending money back home, wherever home might be. If an individual was concerned about spending his hard-earned coin, he could choose to find lodging in a DOS house. DOS houses were cheap and allowed individuals who were down on their luck or trying desperately to find more of it to get some rest for very little. Some of these DOS houses were run out of a single room in a large house. A bench by a wall with a rope strung between two posts on either side was a cheap and efficient way of piling in more lodgers. A few beds of hay on the floor could fetch a higher price. At this time, East London was experiencing stifling poverty. Those who were employed were often paid a subsistence wage that had them living from payday to payday without any real assurance that they'd be able to afford lodging from one week to the next. Landlords divided their houses up into tenements... One room of benches and straw beds, a few others that included a bed, stove, or fireplace, and a meager assortment of shabby furniture and linens. An entire family would live their lives crammed into these tiny accommodations. These landlords were only concerned about collecting rent, and if you couldn't pay, you'd be out on the street. In the Victorian era, families were often large, and small children starting at the age of seven were deemed fit for work. They were employed in factories, did odd jobs, or sold goods on the street. Children whose families were unable to make ends meet were thrown out to fend for themselves. Women also did what they could to provide for their family, sometimes turning to crime or sex work to bring in enough to keep food on the table. A place in the Doss House generally cost four pence per person per night, and the prices went up from there a glass of gin ran about three pence. Many residents of the Doss houses struggled with alcoholism, including Mary Ann Nichols. Her friends knew her as Polly. Perhaps if Polly, a sex worker, hadn't drunk her Doss money three times over, she'd have made it back to her lodging before she met the man in the deerstalker hat. The man with the blade. The man whose name struck fear into the hearts of every man, woman, and child in the Whitechapel District, Jack the Ripper. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the PodMoth Media Network, your weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. This week, I've decided to tackle the tale of Jack the Ripper, the vicious killer who stalked the darkened alleyways of London in 1888. Jack began his killing spree in August of that year, and spared no violence against his victims. This is the first of two episodes on The Ripper. There's far too much information here for one episode. Before we get started, I wanted to let everyone know about some new podcasts on the PodMoth Network. Supernatural Sisters, a spooky podcast with lots of interesting topics produced by Two Sisters. The Real Facts Podcast, a pod that uncovers the real truth about the real world. Leave the Lights On, a true crime slash paranormal podcast. And The Lost Signal, a pod that features original audio plays of the pulp and macabre. All worth a subscribe. You can find links to all of these great podcasts at podmoth.network. When you have a moment, have a listen and leave them a review on iTunes. I'm sure they'd appreciate it. And now, on with the show. My old deodorant just wasn't cutting it anymore. I was constantly itchy and frequently had rashes under my arms. Then I switched to Lumi. In case you were wondering, everything they say in the cute advertisements with the French lady that you've seen are true. Lumi is a natural deodorant for underarms and private parts that's clinically proven to last up to 48 hours. I can now go almost 72 hours without reapplication. I also use Lumi on my feet, and they have a line of soap, lotion, and wipes to satisfy all of your stink suppression needs. Lumi was invented by an OBGYN, is safe for any external use, and is made without aluminum, baking soda, or fragrance oils, so it's safe for even the most sensitive skin. But Lumi still smells pleasant, I'm partial to the juniper berry and clean tangerine myself, but there's also jasmine rose, silver spruce, lavender sage, coconut crush, and unscented. Right now, Lumi is offering first-class shipping on USPS orders over $20 or more, and there's always a sensational sale on their site. You see what I did there? And as a bonus, if you buy using my link, you'll be automatically entered to win a free Lumi product every week. So head on over to the Lumi website via the link in the show notes and take Lumi out for a spin. Lumi, for everyone's pits and stinky bits. Even before Jack the Ripper appeared in Whitechapel, the area already had a dark and devious reputation. People who lived in the other boroughs of London knew Whitechapel to be a no-go zone a place rife with thieves, cutthroats, and women of the night. While the West End was going through massive renovations, with new restaurants, hotels, and concert venues being built, the East End was worlds away. By the late 1800s, roughly 900,000 called the East End home. A quarter of a million people resided in Whitechapel. The area was littered with crime. Poverty and crime were rampant and sanitation conditions were horrifying. The streets were incredibly dark, only lit with a single gas lamp, and farm animals were often led through the streets, leaving trails of feces. Residents threw their raw sewage into the streets as well, so you can imagine the stench. Foreign immigrants called Whitechapel home, and having little money and education, they often worked for long hours in order to feed their families. Residents of the slums generally worked at the docks or in shops and factories. The work was hard, and pay was extraordinarily low. Up to two or three families, 10 to 20 people, would often share space in one room because they couldn't afford to rent anywhere else. Of course, these people would count themselves lucky because they could be staying in a DOS house. At four pence a bed, it was often the case that 80 people would be crammed into an equally small space. Now, I don't want you to think that all of Whitechapel was crime-ridden. Many areas were almost crime-free, but the slums were still some of the worst in the city. At least 15,000 people were unemployed at any given time, and many suffered from alcoholism, spending what little money they did have at the pubs, which were countless. The mortality rate in Whitechapel was very high, and children who lived in the area weren't expected to live past the age of five. Malnutrition and disease were common, and the homes were damp and poorly ventilated. They were infested with insects, and without proper sewage facilities, were also coated in filth. Essentially, if you lived on Flower Street, Dean Street, Dorset Street, or Thrall Street, You were towing the line between extreme poverty and death. Police refused to walk down Dorset unless they had at least three other officers with them. In the 1800s, around 1,200 sex workers were active in Whitechapel. This number is only a guess, as women often had to resort to sex work to make rent and keep their family fed. A desperate woman with rent due in a few days, or feeling the pangs of hunger, would sometimes sell herself for as little as three pence, or even a loaf of bread. Many of the women were alcoholics, and looked twice their age. Their lifestyle meant that they were often diseased, catching anything and everything from random men, and were missing their teeth. The murder of these women often went unreported in the press, or brought to the attention of the authorities because it wasn't really seen as news. The lifestyle that these women chose meant that attacks from their johns were simply a hazard of the work, not newsworthy. Funny how the news hasn't changed much since 1888. The poverty and relative darkness, both literally and figuratively, that these women lived in contributed to the way in which they were treated, and the gas lamps burning sporadically throughout Whitechapel were of no help to these women. If a woman could be coaxed into a dark alleyway on the promise of a stale loaf of bread, what hope did she have for self-preservation? The environment set the stage for one of the most vicious murderers in history. From whitechapeljack.com, quote, While modern folk are more than familiar with the archetype of the serial killer, The Whitechapel Murders of 1888 were unlike anything the Metropolitan Police had ever seen before. With the help of hundreds of movies and the work of FBI profilers, we've become accustomed to the idea of the lone murderer, hiding in plain sight with a compulsive and animalistic bloodlust. In 1888, however, the term serial killer had not even been coined yet. Crime was rampant in Whitechapel, and the bulk of the murders were carried out by street gangs in the form of domestic violence. Even then, however, crimes referred to as ripping consisted of robberies, revenge killings, and random violence to keep the public fearing them. Forensic investigation was almost non-existent, save for the medical investigations determining cause of death. Even results of autopsies were cause for disagreement between medical professionals and coroners. At the time, coroners were elected officials and sometimes had no medical background at all. There was no CSI and not even fingerprinting technology. Police could only hope to elicit confessions from murderers or catch the perpetrator in the act. Trying to catch the Ripper as he attempted to victimize another Whitechapel woman, constables and plainclothes officers flooded the streets of Whitechapel. Saucy Jack, however, was able to elude police every time, performing the murders and mutilations quickly, with officers often patrolling right around the corner. The consistent failure of police to capture the Ripper led to intense criticism from the dozens of newspapers competing in London at the time. Satirical cartoons and scathing articles were released on a daily basis to mock the futile efforts of London police. Recently, news emerged that Bram Stoker, having formally made a Detective Cotford, the hero of Dracula, removed the Metropolitan Police from his novel after becoming disgusted with their handling of the case. The press's main target was Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren, who was already maligned in the press for his role in Bloody Sunday in 1887. He went on to make several unpopular decisions in the handling of the Jack the Ripper case. End quote. The people of London weren't fans of Warren's management of the Trafalgar Square incident known as Bloody Sunday. The Square had become a place for the unemployed and dispossessed to gather and voice their displeasure with authorities. Warren was concerned that the protests would turn into an unruly mob very quickly so he asked the Home Secretary, Henry Matthews, to ban all meetings and protests in the square. Matthews kind of flip-flopped on the idea and didn't enforce the rule, so Warren sent 2,000 policemen to keep order every weekend. Eventually, Matthews did grant Warren's request, but by this time, it was a little too late. The police and the military dispersed the riot that occurred on Bloody Sunday. 300 rioters were taken into custody, and 40 were charged. Some were sentenced to hard labor for up to six months. Depending which website you visit, you might read that two people were killed and 77 were injured. The bottom line is, Warren was not a popular man at this point in history. The police in general were not doing a bang-up job of solving the Ripper murders, and many retailers in the area worried that the Ripper was negatively affecting their business, clearly more important than the loss of life. The Whitechapel Vigilance Committee was formed and offered their own reward for the Ripper's capture. They also took to the streets with their own men, in addition to the current police presence. Warren wasn't sold on offering a reward, as he thought that this would only create more false leads, something that the detectives on the case were already struggling with. The public was struggling with Warren's management of the case, his poor performance further illustrated as far as residents were concerned, when he ordered the Gulfston Street Graffito washed from the wall prior to the scene being cleared. The now-famous Graffito read, quote, The Jewess are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. There was a lot of anti Jewish sentiment in the East End, and Warren was likely trying to prevent an uprising. It's also true at this time that there was very little to be done with the graffito other than note what it said and where it was located. There was no forensic technology to narrow the clue down further. Honestly, it could have just been a random occurrence that just happened to be located close to a murder scene. Catherine Edo's body was found just around the corner from the graffito, and a piece of her apron was found beneath it. The Ripper could have just dropped the piece of fabric as he was fleeing the scene, or placed it there intentionally. He could have written the graffito himself. There's really no way to know for sure. The police had increased their numbers in the Whitechapel area and business owners formed their own neighborhood patrols, but the Ripper eluded them. Bloodhounds were touted as a new way to track the Ripper, but the dogs had no formal training and had never been part of an investigation before. Although the police called upon the dog's owner, Edwin Brough, to bring his dogs to Whitechapel, Brough found out that police had no budget for his services and never showed up. In fact, when Mary Jane Kelly's body was discovered, police waited outside the premises for two hours waiting on bloodhounds that would never arrive. They'd hoped that leaving the scene intact would preserve any scent left by the killer, but nobody had told them that the dogs weren't part of the force, so in reality it just gave the Ripper more time to put distance between himself and the murder scene. The police force was also unaware that Warren had put in his resignation on November 8th, of 1888, one day prior. Communication was not their strong suit. In terms of authorities on the Ripper case, one famous name is Frederick George Aberline, first employed in H division in Whitechapel and, though he had advanced in his career since his time there, he transferred back to work on the Ripper investigation. He was assigned specifically because of his knowledge of the Whitechapel area and was considered to be the best choice for the job. Early on in his career, Aberline had distinguished himself on the Metropolitan Police Force and rose through the ranks quickly, receiving 84 commendations and awards for his service. Aberline's involvement in the Ripper case was so influential that many movies and television series have been made about him. I'm keen on protein powders that give me a little extra boost. There are mornings when I just can't get up and eat a huge breakfast, so I make a protein shake instead, and the powders I got from Unico Nutrition hit the spot. There are so many delicious flavors. Vanilla ice cream milkshake, ooey gooey frosted cinnamon roll, spoonful of peanut butter with chocolate, Aunt Judy's banana cream pie, molten chocolate lava shake, cookies and cream dream, and candy shop caramel squares. They even have a birthday cake cupcake, with rainbow sprinkles. Unico protein powder for women and men is the perfect guilt-free indulgence. Use the low-carb protein shakes for faster recovery after workouts, healthier snacking, or even as a meal replacement. The powder itself is so fine that it blends seamlessly into milkshakes and mixes for baked goods. And Unico has a bunch of recipes on their website for delicious donuts and keto-friendly cinnamon rolls, to name a few. Unico's everyday wellness supplements help replenish essential nutrients and help you live your best life. Trim down and tone up with Unico's best-in-class supplements for weight loss, carefully formulated with five patented all-natural ingredients to help you achieve your healthiest physique. Right now, listeners of The Identity Podcast can save $20 on their purchase at uniconutrition.com. Just head on over to their website and use code Identity at checkout. That's O-D-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. Say goodbye to chalky, tasteless protein powders and supplements that fall flat, and say hello to Unico Nutrition. It's like a bunch of unicorns are having a rave in your mouth. Seriously. From Wikipedia, quote several fictional retellings of the events surrounding Jack the Ripper murders have cast Aberline in the lead role. The suggestion is often, but erroneously made, for the sake of drama, that Aberline was unmarried and formed an attachment to one of the women connected to the events. The two most popular film depictions have also cast him as an addict, from which there is no known historical basis. Aberline was played by Michael Caine in the 1988 television miniseries Jack the Ripper. In this, the character was an aging alcoholic whose quest to solve the murders gives him the strength to give up drinking. A fictionalized Aberline was featured as a protagonist of Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's graphic novel From Hell, 1991-1999, and was subsequently portrayed by Johnny Depp in the very liberal film adaption of that work from 2001. The graphic novel paints him as a sulky but sympathetic policeman, different from his peers only in his moralism and being overweight, and takes pains to include little-known details of his life, such as his involvement with the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. The film's version of Aberline was portrayed as an intelligent young detective who was ahead of his time in Detective Techniques. He is also portrayed as being clairvoyant, allowing the filmmakers to ascribe to Aberline the contributions of spiritualist and psychic Robert James Lees, thus combining the two into one character and simplifying the graphic novel's narrative. Although Aberline is addicted to opium and drinks absinthe, he's a decent man who ultimately goes on a crusade against a very powerful government and upper-class figures to stop the grotesque murders of Jack the Ripper. In the film, Aberline also has a close relationship with Mary Kelly and dies shortly after her murder of an overdose in his late 30s. In reality, he died of natural causes at age 86. Aberline was played by Gordon Christie in the 1973 television miniseries Jack the Ripper. In The Ripper, an episode of the television series The Collector, Aberline was played by Robert Wisden. Aberline appears as a character in the anime series Black Butler, named Fred Aberline. While he's still involved in the Jack the Ripper case, this portrayal deviates heavily from the truth, not only by altering his family history, not married but engaged and with a twin brother, but also by placing his death sometime in 1889. However, the manga version of the story, and also the musicals, depicts him like a young, enthusiastic, and native Scotland Yard agent who will become the successor of Lord Randall, the actual leader of Scotland Yard. In the 2015 video game Assassin's Creed Syndicate, set in 1868, a young Aberline is featured as a supporting character, helping the protagonists Evie and Jacob Fry capture various Templar criminals throughout London and foil a plot to assassinate Queen Victoria by main antagonist Crawford Starrick. Additionally, in the DLC named Jack the Ripper, set in 1888, Evie Frye helps Averline solve a set of brutal murders committed by the infamous maniac to find her brother, Jacob. In the seventh series of Jago and Lightfoot, science fiction audio plays produced by Big Finish Aberline appears as the character portrayed by Adrian Rawlins. In this story, Aberline is portrayed as having secretly captured Jack the Ripper and recruits the title characters to help him in quietly recapturing the murderer after his escape. End quote. Aberline favored George Chapman. His real name was Severin Antoniovich Klazowski for the murders. Chapman had murdered three of his wives with tartar emetic acid, The suspicion fell on Chapman because of an interview his first wife had granted police. She said he was violent and unpredictable, and there were many nights where she didn't know his whereabouts. Aberline also had suspicions that the Ripper could have been a woman. After the Ripper case, he would leave police work behind and eventually head the European Division of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. But his contributions and expertise cannot be undersold. Shortly after Chapman's conviction for wife poisoning, Aberline did an interview with the Paul Mall Gazette on March 24, 1903. Quote, The retired detective said, What an extraordinary thing it is that you should just have called upon me now. I had just commenced, not knowing anything about the report in the newspaper, to write to the assistant commissioner of police, Mr. McNaughton, to say how strongly I was impressed with the opinion that Chapman— was also the author of the Whitechapel Murders. Your appearance saves me the trouble. I intended to write on Friday, but a fall in the garden, injuring my hand and shoulder, prevented my doing so until today. Mr. Aberline had already covered a page and a half of fool's cap, and was surrounded with a sheaf of documents and newspaper cuttings dealing with the ghastly outrages of 1888. I have been so struck with the remarkable coincidences in two series of murders, he continued, that I have not been able to think of anything else for several days past, not in fact since the Attorney General made his opening statement at the recent trial and traced the antecedents of Chapman before he came to this country in 1888. Since then, the idea has taken full possession of me, and everything fits in the dovetails so well that I cannot help feeling that this is the man we struggled so hard to capture 15 years ago. My interest in the Ripper cases was especially deep. I had for 14 years previously been an inspector of police in Whitechapel, but when the murders began, I was at the central office at Scotland Yard. On the application of Superintendent Arnold, I went back to the East End just before Annie Chapman was found mutilated. And as chief of the detective corps, I gave myself up to the study of the cases. Many a time, even after we'd carried our inquiries as far as we could, and made out no fewer than 1,600 sets of papers respecting our investigations, instead of going home when I was off duty, I used to patrol the district until 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. And while keeping my eyes wide open for clues of any kind, have many and many a time given those wretched homeless women, who were Jack the Ripper's special prey, fourpence or sixpence for shelter to get them away from the streets and out of harm's way. As I say, there are a score of things which make one believe that Chapman is the man, and you must understand that we've never believed all the stories about Jack the Ripper being dead, or that he was a lunatic or any of that kind. For instance, the date of arrival in England coincides with the beginning of the series of murders in Whitechapel. There's a coincidence also in the fact that the murders ceased in London when Chapman went to America, while similar murders began to be perpetrated in America after he landed there. The fact that he studied medicine and surgery in Russia before he came here is well established, and it is curious to note that the first series of murders was the work of an expert surgeon, while the recent poisoning cases were proved to be done by a man with more than an elementary knowledge of medicine. The story told by Chapman's wife of the attempt to murder her with a long knife while in America is not to be ignored, but something else with regard to America is still more remarkable. When the coroner was investigating one of the Whitechapel murders, he told the jury a very queer story. You'll remember that Dr. Phillips, the divisional surgeon who made the post-mortem examination, not only spoke of the skillfulness with which the knife had been used, but stated that there was overwhelming evidence to show that the criminal had so mutilated the body that he could possess himself of one of the organs. The coroner, in commenting on this, said that he had been told by the sub-curator of the Pathological Museum connected with one of the great medical schools that some few months before an American had called upon him and asked him to procure a number of specimens. He stated his willingness to give 20 pounds for each. Although the strange visitor was told that his wish was impossible of fulfillment, he still urged his request. It was known that the request was repeated at another institution of a similar character in London. The coroner at the time said, It's not possible that a knowledge of this demand may have inspired some abandoned wretch to possess himself of the specimens. It seems beyond belief that such inhuman wickedness could enter into the mind of any man, but unfortunately our criminal annals prove that every crime is possible. It's a remarkable thing, Mr. Aberline pointed out that after the Whitechapel horrors, America should have been the place where a similar kind of murder began, as though the miscreant had not fully supplied the demand of the American agent. There are many other things extremely remarkable. The fact that Klazowski, when he came to reside in this country, occupied a lodging in George Yard, Whitechapel Road, where the first murder was committed, is very curious, and the height of the man in the peak cap He is said to have worn quite tallies with the descriptions I got of him. All agree, too, that he was a foreign-looking man, but that, of course, helped us little in a district so full of foreigners as Whitechapel. One discrepancy only have I noted, and this is that the people who allege that they saw Jack the Ripper at one time or another state that he was a man of about 35 or 40 years of age. They, however, state that they only saw his back, And it's easy to misjudge age from the back view. Altogether, Mr. Aberline considers that the matter is quite beyond abstract speculation and coincidence and believes the present situation affords an opportunity of unraveling the web of crime such as no man living can appreciate in its extent and hideousness, end quote. Aberline's suspicions were dismissed by George R. Sims, an English journalist, poet, dramatist, and novelist, the following Sunday. Sims wrote, quote, It's perfectly well known at Scotland Yard who Jack was, and the reasons for the police' conclusions were given in the report to the Home Office, which was considered by the authorities to be final and conclusive. End quote. When the Pall Mall reporter returned to Aberline, Sims' complaints were swiftly dismissed by the detective. The article was released on the 31st of March, 1903. Quote, Since the Pall Mall Gazette a few days ago gave a series of coincidences supporting the theory that Klazowski, or Chapman, as he was sometimes called, was the perpetrator of the Jack Ripper murders in the Whitechapel 15 years ago, it has been interesting to note how many amateur criminologists have come forward with statements to the effect that it is useless to attempt to link Chapman With the Whitechapel atrocities. This cannot possibly be the same man, it is said, because first of all, Chapman is not the miscreant who could have done the previous deeds, and secondly, it is contended that the Whitechapel murderer has long been known to be beyond the reach of earthly justice. In order, if possible, to clear the ground with respect to the latter statement particularly, a representative of the Pall Mall Gazette again called on Mr. F.G. Aberline formerly Chief Detective Inspector of Scotland Yard, yesterday, and elicited the following statement from him. "'You can state most emphatically,' said Mr. Aberline, "'that Scotland Yard is really no wiser on the subject than it was 15 years ago. "'It is simple nonsense to talk of the police having proof that the man is dead. "'I am and always have been in the closest touch with Scotland Yard,' and it would have been next to impossible for me not to have known all about it. Besides, the authorities would have only been too glad to make an end of such a mystery, if only for their own credit. To convince those who have any doubts on the point, Mr. Aberline produced recent documentary evidence, which put the ignorance of Scotland Yard as to the perpetrator beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know, continued the well-known detective, that it has been stated in several quarters that Jack the Ripper was a man who died in a lunatic asylum a few years ago. But there's nothing at all of a tangible nature to support such a theory. A representative called Mr. Aberline's attention to the statement made in a well-known Sunday paper, in which it was made out that the author was a young medical student who was found drowned in the Thames. Yes, said Mr. Aberline, I know all about that story, but what does it amount to? Simply this, soon after the last murder in Whitechapel, the body of a young doctor was found in the Thames, but there is absolutely nothing beyond the fact that he was found at the time to incriminate him. A report was made to the Home Office about the matter, but that it was considered final and conclusive is going altogether beyond the truth. Seeing that the same kind of murders began in America afterwards, there is much more reason to think that the man emigrated. Then again, the fact that several months after December 1888, when the student's body was found, the detectives were told still to hold themselves in readiness for further investigations seems to point to the conclusion that Scotland Yard did not in any way consider the evidence as final. But what about Dr. Neil Cream? A circumstantial story is told of how he confessed on the scaffold. At least he's said to have gotten as far as, I am Jack, when the jerk of the rope cut short his remarks. That is also another idle story, replied Mr. Averline. Neil Cream was not even in this country when the Whitechapel murders took place. No, the identity of the diabolical individual has yet to be established, notwithstanding the people who have produced these rumors and who pretend to know the state of the official mind. As to the question of the dissimilarity of character in the crimes which one hears so much about, continued the expert, I cannot see why a man should not have done both, provided he had the professional knowledge, and this is admitted in Chapman's case. A man who could watch his wives being slowly tortured to death by poison, as he did, was capable of anything, and the fact that he should have attempted, in such a cold-blooded manner, to murder his first wife with a knife in New Jersey makes one more inclined to believe in the theory that he was mixed up in the two series of crimes. What, indeed, is more likely than that a man, to some extent skilled in medicine and surgery, should discontinue the use of a knife when his commission, and I still believe Chapman had a commission from America, came to an end, and then for the remainder of his ghastly deeds put into practice his knowledge of poisons? Indeed, if the theory be accepted that a man who takes a life on the wholesale scale never ceases his accursed habit until he is either arrested or dies, there is much to be said for Chapman's consistency. You see, incentive changes, but fiendishness is not eradicated. The victims, too, you'll notice, continue to be women, but they're of different classes and obviously call for different methods of dispatch. End quote. From these interviews, we get a unique look into the way Aberline's mind worked and how passionate he was about the work that he put into the Ripper case. For Aberline, Chapman was a prime suspect in the Ripper murders. Each inspector who investigated the murders had their own theory. Next week, we'll get into who the suspects were, the victims of Jack the Ripper, and the communications that he sent to police. We'll also explore a new Ripper lead that might tell us who the Ripper was. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune in again next week for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram, at IdentityPod, and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com, and if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps.